Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, open up to 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. We'll be crossing the border over into chapter 3, down into verse 3, uh, before the day is through. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, through chapter 3, verse 3. If you don't have your own copy of God's Word, please feel free to open up to page 1400 in the Pew Bible in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, take that home with you. We'd love for you to have it. Uh, as long as you promise to read it. If you don't read it, you owe us $10,000 for it. <laughs> but if you'll read it, it's free. And so uh, take one home if you'd, if you'd like to. First John chapter 2, uh, verse 28 into chapter 3, verse 3. If you have your Bibles open there, do me a favor, please. Stand with me out of reverence for the reading of the words of our God. This reminder is as much for me as it is for you that it's God's Word that matters most. Um, as we come to it here and come to the sermon portion of the service. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in such a way that as the words on this page are being read, God Himself is speaking to us. Chapter 2, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame, at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Let's pray together. Lord, thank You for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank You for the opportunity we have to gather together today. And Lord, I pray our hearts and minds would be open to receive your word and be changed by it today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Sometimes I think uh, as Christians, we tend to send the wrong message about holiness. About walking with Jesus in holiness and righteousness. It's almost like we just give up the fight before it even starts. We know, we know, it's a drag to be holy. We know it's awful. We, we know how bad it is to walk with Jesus in holiness and just how awfully hard it is. And so, the fact we've given up the fight before it even begins sometimes, it feels like we almost need to manipulate people into obeying. I felt this around me some when I was growing up. Um, not from my parents, but just in general, not necessarily always from my church, but just if you grow up in the South, grow up in the Bible Belt, Christianity's just sort of in the water, if you haven't noticed. And, um, you know, uh, let me just say as a brief aside, um, it, it's an important thing to, to make sure if you speak for God or speak about God that you know what you're talking about. Because here's the reality, somebody might believe you. <laughs> Maybe the only thing they've heard about God. There's things they know. It can be really damaging to people if we tell them things that aren't true. So I'm not saying we don't tell people about Jesus, but don't be afraid to qualify things sometimes. Well, as I understand what the Bible says, right? just give the off chance you might be wrong about something. 
Anyway, one of the popular ways this was done, it sort of felt like I was being manipulated into doing what was right, even though it was awful to do, it felt like, uh, when I was growing up was with uh, a simple phrase. Uh, people would say, is that what you want to be doing when Jesus comes back? You guys ever heard this before? You know, do you really want to be watching MTV when, music, when Jesus comes back, you know, or any of the other works of the devil when, when Jesus comes back? Right? Is that really what you uh, want to be doing? What that sort of phrasing does and what that sort of logic does is turn Jesus into sort of a prim schoolmarm whose only interest is catching you doing something bad. I know people right now who have such a hard time seeing God as a loving father instead of God as someone who uh, instead of seeing God as someone who's angry and out to get them and looking for them to mess up all the time. You ever had a friend or a loved one who seemed to delight in you messing up? What a shame, what a sad thing to think about God that way. A phrase like this makes the return of Jesus something to dread. There was almost no given moment as a teenager where I was doing something I really wanted to be doing when Jesus came back. And some of you right now, you think, even when I'm doing something good, you know, I think, man, do I really want to be preaching this sermon when Jesus comes back? You know, surely I could do something better. Surely I could step it up a little bit. It's a hard way to live, and you sort of live in tread of the return of Christ. And ultimately, it buys into the lie that legalism, legalism. If we'll follow a set of rules, if we'll do what we're supposed to do, when Jesus comes back, he'll be happy. But if we don't do what we're supposed to do, when Jesus comes back, he won't be happy with us. There's something to be afraid of, and we need to earn God's favor. We need to earn Jesus' grace. Grace that is earned is no longer grace. Love that has to be earned is not truly love. Sometimes we do. Sometimes Christians do. We talk about walking with Jesus like it's this incredible burden. But I want you to know this morning abiding in Christ abiding in Christ is a precious grace from the Lord it's a gift from a loving God John when he's talking about abiding in Jesus when he says abiding in him abiding in Christ this idea in the Bible is the idea simply of walking close to Jesus throughout our life, spending our life in Christ and Christ abiding in us, living according to God's will as Christians is what it means to abide in Christ. There's a sense then of waiting, the idea abiding and waiting. There's a, a sense of rest. And of course, there is a sense here of a walk, of a journey as we abide in Christ. It is truly a gift to get to walk with Jesus. This morning, I want, to cons- I want you to consider three truths, three things, three beautiful aspects about abiding in Christ. Three truths that will help you see walking with Jesus as the beautiful, gratuitous, wonderful opportunity that it is. Three truths this morning. Here's the first. Abide in hope. Abide in hope. Now, I want you to notice here what John says in verses 28 and 29. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence. You see what he's trying to do. John is trying to show us how we 
can not be fearful about the idea of Jesus returning, but instead have confidence around the idea of Jesus returning. Now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. There may be some of us in the room right now who still have a sort of theology. The people who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ do still have a theology of fear around the Lord, a sort of legalistic fear that if Jesus were to return, he would be greatly displeased with his people. We may feel this temptation and fear to want to even shrink back about these things. But I want you to notice here that John is talking about hope for the future. He wants us to be confident. And he goes on to say in verse 29, If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Why is it as Christians? You know, we we sometimes get funny about the Ten Commandments. We get funny about God's commandments. And we we sometimes um, see them as difficult. And I understand they are sometimes. Right? Especially you start reading the Sermon on the Mount, you start to realize, I'm not doing as good on these things as I think. We start to think about not lying and, and the prohibition of lust, the prohibition of hatred, all these different kind of things. We struggle to think through, man, this is a tall order. But one of the most repeated commands in the Bible, and in particular in the New Testament, in fact, I think it may be Jesus' most often repeated command is this. Fear not. Fear not. Now, it's one thing to wake up in the morning and just to say, you know what, I'm not going to murder anyone today. That's a pretty simple decision to make. I'm hoping everyone here has resolved that in their heart already today. Just murders off the table. It's another thing even to just say, you know what, I'm going to be honest today. I'm committed to honesty. But it's another thing altogether when we start to think about a command not to be afraid. Is it not? Fear so often seems like something that happens to us, not something we choose to do. And so when we start thinking about this, why is it, how is it that God can be so audacious to ask us not to be afraid? Sometimes we think about this, has Jesus ever even watched the news, right? I mean, has Jesus ever even really taken a look at the way the world is? Does Jesus really even know sort of what the future looks like? It's kind of a funny question, isn't it? Of course he knows. Of course Jesus has watched the news. Of course Jesus knows the sort of trouble uh, we would have in the world. In fact, he says that explicitly when he tells his disciples not to fear. In this world, you will have trouble. Do not be afraid. Why is it that we are not fearful about the future? How is it that God can ask us not to be afraid? I want to skip forward just a little bit and show you just a little bit about why. Verse 2 of chapter 3. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. We are not fearful of the future because the promise of the return of Jesus is a good thing for Christians. We look forward to a future that nothing can thwart and that nothing can undo. It doesn't matter how bad things get in terms of Jesus' ability to fix them. 
It does not matter what the future holds so long as Christ holds the future. In particular, we are so not fearful about the thought of the world ending. But people sort of roll their eyes at Christians for believing the world's going to end. Like everyone doesn't believe the world's going to end. Everyone believes it at some level. You just, just hear anyone talking at any time. This is going to be the end of the world. Even people who might not think the whole world's going to end one day believe their world will end, right? We've, you know, every election cycle we hear, this is the most consequential election in history, and if this doesn't happen or that doesn't happen, it's the end of the world as we know it. In four years, again, 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 every time. Everyone thinks the world's going to end. We just believe there's a God who's involved in the process. How is it that we look at whatever future may hold, whatever sort of apocalypse may be out there on the horizon, we are not fearful because of what Jesus has done, and that hope out in the future is rooted in a hope we have today. Today. Notice again, verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. True biblical righteousness comes out of a changed heart. And there may be some of you in the room right now who believe that the way that we earn God's favor, the way that we become more like Jesus, the way that we are accepted into God's family, the way that we can have hope for the future is by trying to be as righteous as possible in order that we might commend ourselves before God. But brothers and sisters, that is the direct mirror opposite of what the Bible teaches. No, our holiness is born out of faith in Christ. Hope leads to holiness. This is the beauty of the gospel. We have hope for today. Uh, Some of you this morning may be struggling with guilt. With guilt. Uh, Some of you may be struggling with shame. Some of you may be struggling with feeling condemned. Oh, I'm sure we're struggling with fear. We live in an age of fear. But the beauty of the gospel is that because of what Jesus has done for us, all of these things meet their end when we are born of Him. It is not up to you to strive and earn your way to God. God has already earned a way for you to come to Him through the death, the life, death, and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. It's the beauty of the gospel, my friends. The hope that we have in Jesus is an antidote to fear. We can live through anything if Christ is rescuing us at the end. Hope gives us the ability to live no matter what the circumstances are. My friends, abide in hope. Abide in hope in fearful days. But second of all, second of all, I hope that you will see the beautiful grace of abiding in adoption. Abide in Adoption. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. What a simple, beautiful proclamation of Christian truth that simple little song is. Jesus loves me. This I know. See what kind of love 
the Father has given to us. So often we recognize, we even just believe almost axiomatically that God loves us, that God is love. And we're thankful for that. Thankful for that truth. In fact, John says that explicitly in this very book, God is love. But people generally believe that God loves them. If there is a God, that He loves us. This is borrowing from Christian truth. This is not something that people generally have believed in human history. In fact, you look at the world the way it is, it's an assumption. If there is a God, He probably doesn't love us. Look how bad things are. The Bible tells us God has acted decisively. We sort of understand it as an axiom that God loves us, but what does this love really look like? How do we start to define this love? How do we put feet to this love? John in verse 28 says, Those who practice righteousness have been born of Him. And in chapter 3, verse 1, just remember the chapters and verses were added later. So this is kind of one letter flowing all the way through. There's no reason why chapter 3 starts right there. So as this continues, he sort of bursts out. He sort of erupts in joy. It's like the fuel of truth and, and the oxygen of the Spirit and the spark of the moment sort of come together and create a combustion of joy in the letter. Notice what he says. The thought of being born of Him seems to lead John with this thought of God's love. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, when you put your faith in Jesus, you are adopted into the family of of God. And so we are, he says. Consider this, beloved, down into verse 2. We are God's children now. We are God's children now. I want you to consider this for just a moment, my friends. That at the moment when you put your faith in Jesus, you are adopted into God's family. Now, one of the most beautiful truths of the, the gospel is the doctrine of substitution. Jesus died in our place. And, and thus, when Jesus died in our place, we put faith in Him. That means that at the cross, our sins were put on Christ. He died for our sins. God punished Him as if He was us. And then I, His righteousness is put on us. But I, I want you to notice for a moment, I read a book the other day about the way that some people may hear that doctrine and just think, well, God doesn't really love me. God loves Jesus. No. No, no. The, the doctrine of adoption blows that thought up. That, that might be the case if God just left us where we were. If He forgave us and said, I'm not going to punish you for your sin, and that's enough, and so go live your life and do what you're doing. You'll be fine on your own. I'm sure you'll have a good future. You know, you'll be considered one day for the family of God's scholarship, but you're not actually part of the family. But perhaps then we might say, well, God is just, this is all self-centered about God. But notice what John says. He says it so clearly. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. That is, through what God has done for His Son, He now treats you as yourself, your personality, your whole personhood, all your weirdness, all your greatness, whatever it is that makes you you, God loves you enough to bring you into His family through the work of His Son. 
It's not just that He loves you because of what Christ has done. It's not that He looks at you and sees the way that you are covered by the blood of Jesus. It's not just that those things are the case, but it's that He loves you now just like He loves His Son. He doesn't only love His Son. He loves you too. You have been made children of God. Oh, do you see why John is exploding with joy? Do you see the beauty of this? You are adopted. No matter how the world sees you, John goes on to say in verse 2, the world doesn't know us because it didn't know Him. No matter what, we are adopted forever. When Jesus returns, we see in verse 2, we will be as Him because we will see Him as He is. We will be treated like Christ. What a welcome into God's family. What an opportunity. What gratuitousness from the Lord to offer us this grace that we don't deserve. One myth in this world is that we are defined primarily or even only by our personal individual identity. We live in a very individualistic age. Now, this manifests itself in countless ways including the reality that whatever identity we perceive ourselves to be trumps any and every reality about who we are, the world around us. Living our truth has come to trump truth in the world we live in. But it also can manifest itself in a sort of obsession with our tribal identities, with our ethnicity, with our political alignment, with our cultural interests, with all these different things. Here's the reality in all of this, though. All of these things ultimately are crushing they're never fully satisfying. Because you, you, you may find your identity in being this or that and being successful or being a part of this culture, but you can never quite be successful enough. You can never quite be that culture enough. The feeling of what you're missing gnaws at you when all you're trying to do is fill a hole through identity. But adoption into the family of God answers the problem that we are trying to solve. We receive acceptance and love and a true lasting identity that can never be taken away. Nothing can remove you from the love of the Father. There are things you could do right now to make whatever tribe you're finding your hope in reject you. I've talked to countless people over the years who made mistakes And their mistakes seemed to cost them everything in their life. Whatever tribe they were trying to ingratiate themselves to or be a part of. In other words, we can never quite keep up with the Joneses. The Joneses will always be a step or two ahead. We can be rejected. We can be despised. We can feel forgotten. We can be outcasts. And we can have hope. And we can have peace. Because no matter what we're not, In this world, what we are abides forever. We are children of the King. We have been adopted into the family of God. What grace it is, my friends, to abide in the adoption that has been provided for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me encourage you to abide in hope, to abide in adoption, and then finally, abide in in holiness. Abide in holiness. Chapter 3, verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as he is pure. 
Everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. We so often misunderstand the way the Bible teaches holiness. This is a thought that's ultimately borrowed from the Old Testament. Be holy, God said, as I am holy. That, that is your relationship to me, God told the Israelites. Not your ability to keep the law, not any of these other things. Who you are, and ultimately, an Israelite was an Israelite by grace. No one chooses what family they're born into. Your relationship to me is what produces your holiness. Your relationship to Christ is what purifies you, is what leads to your purity. Everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Oh, we could, I could hear that verse all day. <laughs> it's like a little pocket park of biblical sanctification. It's lush and verdant and gorgeous, sort of just peeking its head out here in the middle of this book, giving us just this beautiful punch of truth about what holiness really is. The flow of direction in this verse is so wonderful. It's so satisfying. It's so freeing. We go from hope to holiness, not from holiness to hope. Think about that for a moment. Some of you are fearful and worried about your relationship with Jesus because you think your hope rides on your performance. <laughs> but it doesn't. No, no, no. Your performance, <laughs> which is a bad word, your holiness flows out of your hope. Who, who you are in relation to God is based on what Jesus has done. God loves you gratuitously, graciously. There's nothing you can do to earn it or deserve it. There's nothing you can do to make Him stop loving you. And your holiness comes out of that. You see, what legalism does is it tends to turn our understanding of holiness upside down. Holiness has a tendency to become something that we try to do to make God love us or give us blessings. Sometimes I'll call this rabbit's foot theology. As long as I'm doing okay obedience-wise, and I mean, let's just be honest, what, what okay, obedience-wise, looks like is kind of like a batting average. So I made a 30 on a test, it's a pretty bad day. You got a 300 batting average, you're doing great. How, how good are we doing? Maybe not as good as we think, but all that being said, sometimes we have a tendency to think, as long as I've got that 300 batting average on the Ten Commandments in my pocket, this little rabbit foot here, God's going to bless me. He's, he's going to do what I think he should do. First of all, it's a misunderstanding of God's love. And second of all, it's a misunderstanding of God's blessings. And most importantly, maybe for you as you hear this, it's an absolutely miserable, awful way to live. And it puts a bad taste in our mouth when it comes to actual holiness, actual righteous living. I hate legalism because I Love, holiness. You see, legalism turns our understanding of what it means to walk with Jesus upside down. We walk till we get to Jesus in legalism's view. But in the biblical view, in the gospel view, we walk because Jesus picked us up when we needed it. We walk because we were adopted into God's family when we were rebellious 
sinners. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ turns things right side up. We begin with this reality. God loves you. In this, we can see the love of God. We have been adopted as children, and so we are children of God. He loves you so much that He sent His Son into the world to redeem you from your sins, to wash you, to make you whole. And when you put your faith in Him, He gives you His Holy Spirit to help you become more like Jesus as He delivers you from sin. Holiness is not an obligation, it's an opportunity. It's a wonderful grace from the Lord. It's a response to God's love, not a way to earn God's love. Holiness is an enjoyment of God as the ultimate gift and a rejection of sin that doesn't work the way it said it was going to work. When you're in seminary, typically you're broke. Whitney and I had cats in seminary. And... um, I was the pooper scooper at Grinstead Apartments, Southern Seminary. It's my job. Because apparently, there were Whitney's cats, but apparently if there's a chance you can be pregnant, you don't need to be dealing with cat litter. Sounds made up to me, but okay, I believe it. Whatever, I'll do it. <laughs> so we didn't have any money, and uh, we're at Target or somewhere one night, and we're walking through, and I see this beautiful product an automatic cat litter box. All my troubles are over. This is all I've ever needed. Well, we bought it. And I bet you know the way the story goes, don't you? Those things are terrible. It's worse than just dealing with the cat litter, okay? It's terrible. It doesn't work. It doesn't work like it said it was going to work. I told the people at customer service about it. They don't care, it turns out. You're sad, you're lonely, you're struggling, you're worried, you're afraid. Oh, look, there's sin. It'll fix it. It'll make it better, my friends. It'll make it worse than it was before. The the medicine that you're trying to use will kill you quicker than the problem will. There are such temptations around us. Temptations to give in to fear. Temptations to abide in a life that's rooted in this world. Temptations to abide in legalism. Reject those things. They don't work like they say they'll work. Brothers and sisters, instead, abide in hope knowing that this world will be redeemed by Christ. My friends, abide in adoption, living every day in the reality that you are part of God's family. You are joint heirs with Jesus. Nothing can separate you from your Father. Little children, abide in holiness and live out that life with joy and righteousness before God, growing in faith and good works as you go. Those who live this way will not be put to shame. Isn't that what we want to be doing when Jesus comes back? 